This week in KMA Land, fire guts downtown Shenandoah business. Threatening letter forces Shen JK8 building lockdown. Shenandoah officials call for Page County jail input. Carbon pipeline protests turn to Page County. New developments in Page County turbine lawsuit. And Shen Council receives senior housing project update. I'm Mike Peterson. What was a devastating fire in downtown Shenandoah could have been much worse, if not for a combined firefighting effort. Fire gutted a commercial building occupied by Survival Eats at 204 South Maple Street late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning. Shenandoah Fire Chief Justin Marshall told KMA News his department was dispatched shortly after 10.30 p.m. and arrived at the scene about four minutes later. We had uh, heavy smoke coming from the eaves and the roof of the building. We mounted a brief offensive attack. The fire started to come through the roof. The roof was compromised. We immediately went into defensive mode. Firefighters from Coyne, Essex, Clarinda, and Red Oak responded under mutual aid. Marshall says that assistance stopped the flames from spreading into adjoining buildings in the same block. We had a heavy fuel load inside. There was a fat part of it was a fabrication shop. We had basically had the building surrounded. We did keep the fire into one building. The firewalls did hold. Had we not had the resources in place as fast as we did, and had the aerial and the water supply we had and had an aggressive attack on this, we could have potentially lost the entire block of Thomas. And we did keep it to one building. Shenandoah Police, Shenandoah EMS, and MidAmerican Energy also assisted to the scene. While most mutual aid responders left the scene at around 1.30 Wednesday morning, Shenandoah firefighters worked in shifts through the night and remained in the fire through late Wednesday morning to extinguish hot spots. Overall, the chief lauded the team effort in containing the fire. Everybody kept their heads on straight, worked together. It was a very calm, well-executed fire. I'm just, I'm just very pleased with the, the cooperation and, and the ability to get this contained to where we did. It was, it was phenomenal. If, if you would have told me when I told a lot of the guys this last night, if you would have told me when we initially sized this fire up that we would have had this thing contained by 1 a.m., I would have I would have never believed it. Marshall says the building is a total loss. An investigator from the state fire marshal's office was expected to help pinpoint the fire's origin and determine a dollar amount for the damage. Monday was not a normal day of classes at Shenandoah's JK8 building, not after a threatening letter was discovered. Dr. Kerry Nelson, superintendent, tells KMA News JK8 principal Aaron Burdorf informed her that a written note was found in a bag indicating a weapon at the middle school. Nelson says the entire building was placed under lockdown while the school's administration and police searched for the weapon. He did exactly what I would have expected him to do. He notified the police department. He contacted me. And then we were able to implement the rest of our emergency operation plan. He did an excellent job responding. I really feel good about that. All students and staff are safe. The wonderful thing is no weapon was found. School officials issued an all-clear after no weapon was discovered. Nelson says Burdorf and other staff members followed correct protocol during the lockdown. Our priority was keeping students and staff safe, which is why we go into lockdown in those situations. We did lock down the entire JK8 building because they are located in one physical building, but we took the precautions that were necessary, followed the procedures, and were able to return to normal operations. The superintendent lauded the building's instructors and administrators for keeping the students calm. They did a really nice job during the situation of keeping kids calm, staying calm themselves, talking through what was happening. Um, being very patient with each other. Mr. Burdorf has taken time going room to room, explaining more about what's happened 
and communicating with everyone. And then at this point, they're trying to get things as normal as possible so that students feel, again, safe about being at school. They were able to eat lunch and then move, you know, move on with their day. Nelson also commended Shenandoah police for their response to the matter. The investigation into the written note continues. Nelson says text messages and emails regarding the situation were issued via the district's school messenger system. Parents or guardians who didn't receive any messages through that system should sign up through a link provided by the district. Discussions over a proposed Page County Jail this week centered on Shenandoah's role, or lack thereof, in the planning process. Meeting in regular session Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors discussed the ongoing county jail study and possible locations with Shenandoah officials. Previously, the county jail committee discussed three possible locations, the county farm south of Clarinda, land along Highway 2 near the Page County landfill west of Clarinda, and a closed-down lodge southwest of the former Clarinda Mental Health Institute. However, no formal decisions have been made. The Shenandoah City Administrator A.J. Lyman expressed disappointment in how little his city has been included in those discussions. He also questioned why a more centralized location wasn't being more seriously considered. My prior life uh, doing emergency management with FEMA, been in um, hundreds of counties across the country, I can't count the number of central sheriff's office jails I've been in uh, in order to provide centralized services everywhere. Um, you know, from a from a management perspective, you know, the city of Shenandoah for years and years and years has been responsible for transporting all of our uh, arrests to Page County Jail. We figured up the map. We spend at least $40,000 a year just in transporting to Page County. Supervisors Chair Alan Armstrong says he has been interested in finding a more central location, but has also received guidance from those in law enforcement. The jail is often best served in the county seat. The expense once the prisoners get there of getting them to the courts, getting them to a hospital. Um, some of those travel expenses get rather uh, pharmacies, trips, uh, dentists, eye doctor, because it's amazing. I don't think most people realize how many times those prisoners get service. Lyman pointed out that arrangements and doctor's appointments are more open to virtual options than ever and noted the possibility of housing medical personnel at the new facility should the county move towards shared emergency services. However, Armstrong added finding a decently priced and flat plot of land for a jail between Clarinda and Shenandoah has been hard to come by. He added the land between Highway 2 and the county landfill would be a significant dirt-moving job to level out the property. Supervisor Jacob Holmes says they would likely need at least five acres of land for the facility. But Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen added they simply want a seat at the table for the discussion. We appreciate what you're doing. We're not here to, to stir up anything. We just want a place at the table on these discussions because we have to represent our, our people in Shenandoah and the people that our police force represent in Essex. And so we would like to have some kind of input on this, of how this goes. So we're not, like I say, we're not here. I appreciate you guys' time for letting us come over because we just thought this would be a good time to, to get in on the, on the conversation. Supervisor Chuck Morris strongly encouraged Supervisor Jacob Holmes, the board's jail committee liaison, and Greg Wild with Samuels Group to involve Shenandoah officials in any future meetings regarding the jail project. Also at Tuesday's regular meeting, the supervisor has heard calls for a county carbon pipeline ordinance. 
Two local residents expressed opposition to Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed Midwest Express CO2 pipeline. Plans call for the five-state project to cut through nearly 700 miles in Iowa, including roughly seven miles in Page County, connecting up to Green Plains, Shenandoah, and Fremont County, one of several ethanol plants signed on for the project. Jan Norris is a Montgomery County resident living just north of the county line. Norris says she and her husband James opposed the pipeline, mainly due to the possible long-term damage the pipes could cause to the land and the company's pursuit of federal tax credits designed for carbon sequestration projects. Landowners can never build a building or even plant a tree along the route. Communities cannot expand. Fields are cut in half. Timbers and habitats are forever removed. And our federal tax dollars will pay for it all. It is not a climate change solution, and a recent rupture proved that they are very dangerous. Norris called on the supervisors to look into an ordinance similar to what Shelby County has passed and is currently under review in Montgomery County. Despite recent legal action from Summit against their county, Norris says Shelby County officials are confident in the legality of their ordinance. Shelby County passed its pipeline ordinance early this month after considerable research, deliberation, and collaboration with an experienced legal expert. They were careful to follow all the code in writing their ordinance and included reasonable requirements that can be substantiated in court. They fully anticipated being sued by Summit knowing it was a matter of when, not if. Marty Maher is a landowner in Page County. He says a county ordinance would serve as a risk assessor, particularly regarding setbacks. Maher alleges Summit is using FIMSA rules that only require a 50-foot setback from a residence, despite the agency's regulations being under review. Can you imagine a high-pressure pipeline 51 feet from your house? That was designed, according to my engineers, for natural gas pipelines going through town, and they operate at a much, much lower pressure so they could service the houses on either side of the street. That's where they got the 50-foot rule. So they're... That's the only thing that them has. So that's what they're using. And I think it's faulty. I think it's uh, ridiculous and is no concern for our safety. Supervisors Chair Alan Armstrong encouraged Norris and Mayher to share ordinances with them to review. New developments on the wind turbine front this week. Petitioners in a Page County lawsuit asked for the case to be remanded back to state court. Federal documents state lawyer Sean Shearer filed the motion November 16th following an order from a federal judge in the Southern District of Iowa to resubmit and clarify the jurisdiction of the federal court and standing of one of the several claims alleged against Page County. Petitioners, including Page County residents, had filed the case initially in Iowa District Court before the respondents, including Page County, filed a notice of removal to the Southern District of Iowa. Included in the Shearer and co-counsel Theodore Spohr's argument is the Pullman Abstention Doctrine. Shearer tells KMA News the doctrine revolves around the first impression of state law, which he says applies to most of the claims in their petition. There's a state law that's very specific that hasn't been interpreted yet by the Iowa courts that says that the one with the most restrictive use and height limitations is the one that it applies. And in that case, that would be the zoning ordinance, which says you can't use agricultural land in Page County for wind turbines, and it says you can't build anything over two and a half stories tall. He adds that a review by the state could remove the need for a federal court to rule on a void for vagueness claim, which initially prompted the county to remove the case to federal court. 
citing the U.S. Constitution 14th Amendment Due Process Clause. Additionally, Sporer says the doctrine also addresses which types of claims predominate in a petition, the majority of which in this case involve state law. Is federal courts abstain from hearing cases where the state law questions predominate over the federal question. Well, there's not an expressly, there's not even an expressly stated claim, federal claim of any kind in the petition. In fact, the petition asks for remedies that a federal court can't provide with respect to Iowa public officials. According to federal court records, no further action has been taken on the petitioners or respondents' latest briefs regarding jurisdiction. Or standing. Monday night's Red Oak City Council meeting marked the end of an era in city government. Council members recognized outgoing city administrator Brad Wright and city clerk treasurer Mary Bolton for their community service. Wright has worked with the city for nearly 21 years, while Bolton has been an employee for almost 39 years. The two individuals submitted their letters of retirement and resignation earlier this month, effective at the end of this year. Councilwoman Janice Lester presented both longtime employees with appreciation awards and thanked them for their combined nearly six decades of service to the community. As people have said, you've seen so, so many changes we all have in this world. Um, it's been my pleasure to work with you guys, even though we didn't always agree, but it's been my pleasure. I always got, like someone said, I always got an honest answer, and um, all the councilmen before me, af you know, after, I mean, we just appreciate everything you guys have done. I hope that you enjoy retirement. Additionally, several current and former city staff and council members spoke during the meeting's public comment period, showcasing their appreciation for Wright and Bolton over the years. Among them, City Street Superintendent Chris Baird. While applauding their work in the office space and emphasizing the importance of documentation, Baird commended their efforts beyond City Hall and typical business hours. More than once, I've witnessed Brad jumping in to help with a major water main break tossing disgusting bags of trash to help clean up nuisance properties. I doubt there are many administrators willing to help employees with the dirty jobs sometime we encounter. Example of Mary's work dedication is time when it's the time I remember her calling at nine thirty on a Sunday night to report a citizen's phone call for help. She was still at City Hall working. Following their recognition, Wright shared his appreciation for the team that had come to work like a well-oiled machine over the years, mainly due to a strong working relationship with Bolton and what he says has been a top-notch staff. We've always <laughs> joked, and we've, we can annoy each other, but the relationship we've had, being able to work together, I appreciate the department heads. We've got a team that I hope you guys appreciate and I hope this community appreciates. Again, we've got a crew and a team that... Uh, doesn't matter what the job is, doesn't matter what the limitations of our resources is, uh, everybody ties them together and gets the job done. Additionally, having worked with the city since 1984, Bolton reflected on how the times have changed, particularly technology and the number of individuals she has interacted with over the years. The first computer took up one whole room. <laughs> and now look at it. Yeah, been through a lot of mayors, a lot of councils, and a lot of employees. <laughs> Council members and Mayor Shauna Silvius wished Wright and Bolton the best in their retirement. While their departures aren't official till the end of the year, with utilizing accumulated vacation time, Wright and Bolton's last days in the office are December 5th and 2nd, respectively. Questions regarding Shenandoah's senior housing project were aired during Tuesday night's city council meeting. 
Andrew Danner, principal with North Star Housing, LLC, addressed questions regarding Shenandoah Senior Villas during a public hearing on a proposed development agreement between the city and the company. Preliminary demolition work is underway at the site of the proposed 40-unit complex at 1401 West Sheridan Avenue. Danner says the project has encountered numerous hurdles. It's been a long time coming. This was a tough one to get done with the construction delays and project cost issues across construction in general. I think everybody understands that. One of the questions fielded by Danner concerned the type of elevator planned for the complex. While no freight elevator is included, Danner says a large elevator will be available for moving furniture into the units. Another question dealt with asbestos discovered in the former gas station slated for demolition. Danner says almost all of the asbestos has been removed. I think December 12th is when the demo crew is mobilizing out off of another job that they're on right now currently. So the asbestos was a surprise to us when we got it tested. You know, you got to follow all the rules. So uh, added costs unexpectedly as usual. Danner adds the last underground storage tanks at the site were removed in 1999. He projects a 15-month construction period for the complex. Hopefully if we can keep some good weather, knock on some wood, uh, we can be moving through these. Uh, we've got to get some utility poles relocated uh, with MidAmerican Energy. They've been great to work with and getting those done so we can get the site work going. Similar public hearings were held regarding development agreements with Community First Credit Union's facility at 603 South Fremont Street. Green Plains Incorporated's proposed bio-campus expansion, including its $50 million clean sugar facility. And Malosia LLC, the company spearheading the renovation of the former Johnson Brothers Mill building. Council members also held a public hearing on a revision of the city's urban renewal plan to incorporate the Community First and Shenandoah Villa projects into city limits. However, the council deferred action in all four agreements in the urban renewal plan until the next regular council meeting December 6th. Clarinda officials are exploring all their options in addressing items arising from an ongoing facility study. That's according to Clarinda School Superintendent Jeff Privia, who discussed the assessment at a special Clarinda School Board meeting with SiteLogic Tuesday night. The board tasked the firm with conducting the comprehensive review earlier this year. Privia told KMA News SiteLogic representatives hosted a No Surprises meeting, including the various ways the district could address facility needs based upon their initial review. Of top priority, previous is the firm suggested that adding six classrooms at the current 7th through 12th grade facility could go a long way in addressing the current space issues. Those would probably um, really be for our middle school students, and they would be on a wing almost by themselves, which fits our program really well. Then the next thing they talked about was some of our um, students that go through our PE area and weightlifting, the number of students there. Privia adds the space crunch can also be partly attributed to the amount of classroom space needed to offer adequate programming for its students. Additionally, Privia says the firm has presented a significant need to address the behind-the-scenes portions of the elementary school, particularly the building's heat pumps, with 20 to 25 currently at or past their end-of-life threshold. It's uh, really important that we take the time and spend some money in the, that area to make sure we can heat and cool our school for student comfort those kind of things and then that'll get into a little bit of our ventilation system um, making sure our co2 levels are, are a little bit lower they're they're not at a dangerous level by any means but they are at a level that isn't conducive to um, school climate Privia says the district has also looked at adding a new bus loop at the elementary school 
Other possible ideas have included refurbishing the district's CTE area, maintenance to the district's parking lots, bus barns, or creating a preschool at the current Clarinda Innovation Learning Center. However, Privia says the board's next step is narrowing down its priorities. It comes down to, okay, this is a project we'd really like to do. How much is that going to cost us? And we'll try to get estimates on that. And then, then we'll start working with a, um, another company, Piper Sandler, seeing what possibilities are for funding. Uh, Privia emphasized that the board wants to continue taking the process one step at a time to ensure they get the best result possible for filling the school district and community's needs. With Thanksgiving weekend upon us, some big Yuletide celebrations are coming up in KMA land. Clarinda kicked off the Christmas season last night with a traditional lighted Christmas parade. And tonight's the night the lights come on in Shenandoah. Speaking on KMA's morning show recently, Skia Marketing Director Shelley Warner says festivities kick off from 3 to 5 this afternoon when children have the opportunity to soup with Santa at his sleigh for photos next to the Flatiron Clock and see the live reindeer. Additionally, Warner says Mrs. Claus and Miss Shenandoah Carrie's Woolsley will be helping people ring in the new year before the downtown area and brightened by Christmas lights. Mrs. Claus and Miss Shenandoah will be out there passing out some jingle jam necklaces to kind of ring in the new year and um, and then at 5.30, they actually do the countdown, Santa and Mrs. Claus, and uh, of course we'll have lots of jam and Christmas music out there too, but um, they do the countdown and the lights come on and that's the biggest deal. Our, our downtown Christmas lights are yeah. very unique and beautiful. The Shenandoah Forum Group provides jingle jam Christmas music and hot chocolate. After the lighting ceremony, Warner says people can head to the Shenandoah Veterans Memorial Museum at 603 West Lowell Avenue from 5 to 7 p.m. or continue to take advantage of Skia's Snowdoe incentives. And they're partnering partnering with the VFW and you can tour the museum and have soup and pie. It's a fundraiser, so they're just taking a free will donation. And yeah. uh, so that'll kind of cap off the evening. And of course, you can shop, um, you know, start your Christmas shopping that day or or whichever day this week you want to do. Yeah. Um, we still have Snowdoe promotion going on and you can spend those dollars that they purchased at, we hope, small businesses. And then they can sign up for a $500 drawing, which we'll give away in January. Two other Shenandoah holiday traditions are back this year. Mrs. Claus hosts a free Christmas movie next Saturday at 10 a.m. at the Legacy Three Theater, and Santa Claus returns for his Saturday visits at the Everly Brothers Childhood Home at 800 West Sheridan Avenue, December 3rd, 10th, and 17th from 2 to 4 p.m. And it's a Christmas program with divine intervention. Preparations continue for the Southwest Iowa Theater Group production of Nuncrackers, which takes the Park Playhouse's Stan Orton stage next month. Based on the Nonsense series of plays, Nuncrackers centers around the Sisters of Hoboken, who decide to stage their own Christmas special on public access cable TV, complete with music, dancing, kids, and complete chaos. Director Pan Lewis says Nuncrackers takes a big cast. There are 24 in the cast, 8 children, and 16 adults. There we go, I had to add. And then 3 in the band, and the lights, and the two stage managers, and so we've got a really nice group of people. Belinda DeBolt, who plays Sister Mary Hubert, says cast members have rehearsed for the past three months. We've been at it since September. Uh, we've had uh, to kind of maneuver around some other big things that have been happening in the community, but it's worked out fine. Uh, everybody's just been great, and we have quite quite a few characters. And I'm not talking about the, the actual characters, I'm talking about the 
the actors and the players. Uh, we all have a really good time together. We, we uh, tone it down sometimes because we are having so much fun, but Pam puts up with us. Speaking of characters, Angie Trowbridge plays Sister Mary Leo, a tutu-wearing nun. I've loved every minute of it. Yes, there are some challenges when it comes to singing different parts and singing harmonies, especially when there's a Gloria that's only like three measures long and you have to know hit that note right away. <laughs> but the choreography has been a lot of fun. Nuncrackers takes place at the Park Playhouse in Shenandoah December 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, and December 9th, 10th, and 11th. Showtimes are Friday and Saturday evenings at 7.30, Sunday afternoons at 5. All seats $10. Call the Park Playhouse box office for reservations at 712-246-1061. That wraps up this week in KMA Lab. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com. You can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.